New Year's resolution for 2005, please raise your hand. Don't be shy. Right up in the air, please. Okay, that's interesting. Now, if you've already broken your New Year's resolution, please lower your hand. Well, some people are being very secretive. Please put your hands down now. According to one opinion poll I found, around half of Britons make a New Year's resolution each year. And according to the same poll, uh, here are the top ten resolutions that people made two years ago. Okay, so this is for resolutions made for 2003. So just see if yours, uh, if you've made one this year, is in the top ten. And if you didn't make a resolution this year, then just imagine for the moment uh, what resolution you would have made had you made one. So, coming in at number ten, we have read more books. Number nine was relax more. Number eight, get a new job. I, I don't know whether this person uh, wants to get a new job or whether this is the job they got, but anyway. At seven, we have stop smoking. Uh, the Scottish executive particularly want to help you with that one, by the way. Uh, number six, drink less alcohol. There's someone with a drink problem, obviously. Uh, number five, we've got be nicer to people. Uh, number four, pay off debts. Number three was eat more healthily. Number two, take more exercise. And number one, lose weight. <laughs> Apparently the number one slot was comprised of people who want to lose weight but without having to take more exercise. Well, whether or not you made a New Year's resolution for 2005, it is more than likely that you made some kind of plans. You've made some kind of plans for the year ahead. And if you think about it, a New Year's resolution is just one kind of plan, isn't it? It's a plan that we will do certain things or perhaps stop doing certain things as of the 1st of January for as long as we can, hopefully for good. However, whether or not you've made a New Year's resolution, I imagine that most of us will have made plans of some kind for 2005 plan to move home, uh, to uh, find a new job perhaps, get a qualification, take on a new responsibility, to get married, to start a family, to go on holiday, to join a club, to get involved in a church ministry, or perhaps just to keep doing what you were doing last year, but do it a little better than you did last year. Whoever you are, and whatever you do in life, I'm sure that you have plans, ambitions, aspirations or what you will do in this year and what you hope to accomplish. We all have plans. Now the passage I want us to consider this evening has something very important to say to us as Christians about how we go about making our plans. In short, it tells us that there is a right way to make plans and there is a wrong way to plan. There is good planning and there is bad planning. And we need to be clear on that. But before we look at these particular verses, I want to... I want to give you just a little bit of background on James's letter that we've been reading from, just to put it in wider context. And I would reiterate, uh, as Donald said, I did not write this letter, though I happen to have the same name. And so when I, uh, I'm speaking and I say, James says this and James says that, it's not me. It's the, the letter from James in the first century, okay? Well, a bit of background. First of all, we should note that the letter from James was written to Christians in general. Unlike many of the New Testament letters, uh, it wasn't addressed to a particular church in a particular location, but to all Christians uh, in churches all around the known world of that day. 
And those Christians were living in a predominantly pagan society. There was tremendous pressure on them to conform to the immoral lifestyles of those around them. And they would have been at best mocked and at worst persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. So they were wrestling uh, with the problem of living faithful Christian lives in a very anti-Christian environment. And furthermore, the Christians to whom this letter was addressed would have come from many different backgrounds, different occupations, different ethnic origins, different social statuses, different levels of wealth, some well-off and some not so well-off. In fact, I'm sure you can see that the circumstances that were facing the original readers of James's letter were not so different from the circumstances facing Christians gathering in a city centre church in Edinburgh at the beginning of the year 2005. So this letter, James's letter, is very relevant to us indeed. Secondly, this letter is a very practical letter. Unlike Paul, who wrote many of the New Testament letters, James does not develop long, intricate theological arguments. He isn't so much concerned with doctrine as with practical Christian living. Or rather, he takes the doctrine for granted, that's his starting point, and focuses on how it should impact our attitudes and our actions in practice. His letter is packed with commands, exhortations, and blunt rebukes. Do this. Stop doing that. And so then, because of this focus he has on Christian living, James shows a deep concern for consistency between beliefs and actions. A deep concern for consistency between beliefs and actions. You say that you believe all these things, do you? Is that what you say you believe? Well then, you should be doing all these things in response, shouldn't you? That's the sort of thing he's saying. James's mission is to seek out and destroy hypocrisy in the church. He's writing to people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, believers of God's word, and he challenges them to apply a consistent Christian mindset to everything that they do. And in chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, that we're looking at this evening, he directs his spotlight on the specific topic of making plans for the future. How should Christians approach this? Well, he says, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. Or to put it more directly, there is godly planning and there is godless planning. And in good teaching tradition, James begins with the negative before setting out the positive alternative. So then, let's first look, look at uh, what he says about godless planning in verses 13 and 14 and then verse 16. Godless planning. Well, James begins by uh, painting a picture in verse 13 of the type of people who really need to be set straight on this subject. These people are Christians, uh, since he's writing to Christians, and he addresses them as you, and they're Christians who are making plans. Now, it seems that these particular Christians are businessmen, travelling tradesmen, or entrepreneurs of some sort, but the picture here is really general enough to apply to any kind of planned activities, because these plans they had have five basic elements. And uh, they're really in response to questions. First question is, when? When will they do the things that they plan to do? Today or tomorrow? Where? Where will they do it? This or that city? How long will they do it for? They're going to spend a year there. What exactly will they do? They're going to carry on business. And why? Why are they going to do it? 
to make money. That's the motivation, the goal. Now think for a moment of your own plans for 2005, whatever they may be. I suspect that these five elements will be in there. Whatever it is that you have in mind to do, you'll have some idea of when you will do it, where you will do it, how long you're going to do it for, what exactly it is that you're going to do, and of course, why you'll be doing it. So the sort of plans in view here are just the sort of plans for the future that all of us make. But what's the problem here? What's wrong with making these sort of plans? What exactly does James mean to criticise here? Interestingly, despite the fact that he later uh, directs some harsh words at wealthy people in just the following chapter, um, he isn't here criticising the idea of making money, of conducting business for profit. That's not what he's criticising here. I'm sure that the many members of Charlotte Chapel employed by Standard Life will be pleased to hear that, as well as those of you who work for other businesses. No, the problem here is that these Christians have made two basic oversights. They failed to acknowledge two important factors. The first is the fact that the future is unpredictable. The future is unpredictable. Why, says James, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow, verse 14. Now the point here is not that we're completely ignorant about the future so that we don't even know uh, whether the sun is going to come up in the morning or whether the slice of pizza that we put in the fridge the night before will still be there tomorrow morning. We're not talking about complete ignorance of the future here. No, the point is that because we are fallible, limited human beings, tomorrow will always bring unexpected things. Sometimes minor events, but sometimes significant, life-changing, even life-shattering events. And we must acknowledge that as we make our plans. But the sad fact is that we often don't do that. We make plans, and we announce those plans, as if we hold the future in our hands. We don't. The future is not ours to see, as the song goes, and still less is it ours to hold. So the first oversight here is the unpredictability of the future. The second is the fleeting nature of life. The fleeting nature of life. What is your life, says James? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You make these great, confident plans, but you forget that in the grand scheme of things, your life is but a mist, a vapour, a mere puff of smoke, and hangs in the air for a moment, but one wave of the hand, passing draught, and it's gone. And the point here is not merely the frailty of human life, the fact that any of us could wake up fit and healthy one morning, full of life, and yet that life could be snatched from us before the sun sets that same day, however true that may be. More than that, even if we were to live a good four score years and ten on this earth, that would be but a blink of the eyes, a mere snap of the fingers in comparison to eternity, an eternity which will ultimately be spent either in perfect fellowship with God or in permanent and painful separation from him. Bible scholars have noted that a lot of what James writes in this letter seems to be inspired by the teaching of Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels. And if the James in question was the earthly brother of Jesus, as many scholars think, then this would uh, be especially understandable. 
And some scholars have suggested that in writing these particular verses, James may have been thinking of Jesus' parable of the rich man in Luke chapter 12, and verses 16 to 21. You remember the story, uh, perhaps. This already wealthy man had enjoyed a good year's harvest. So good, in fact, that he just didn't have enough space to store all the food that he had produced. And so he says to himself, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. He had a plan, you see. A plan. A good, sensible, very practical plan. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself. The man had not reckoned with the the fleeting frailty of human life, of his own life. So James draws attention to these two basic facts of our existence. On the one hand, the uh, unpredictability of the future, and on the other, the fleeting nature of human life. I really wish I didn't have this illustration to use, but... What a devastating illustration of those two facts we've been given this past week. As over 100,000 people have lost their lives as a result of the earthquake and tsunami in South Asia. Who was able to predict that? Who on Christmas Day knew that was coming? And how tragically easy it was for tens of thousands of lives to be wiped out in a mere matter of hours. The unpredictability of the future and the fleeting nature of human life. Now these two oversights are are not the whole story. In fact, they're merely symptomatic of a deeper problem. Namely, the failure to apply, to consistently apply, a Christian mindset. A truly biblical Christian perspective to one's day-to-day living. The people addressed in these verses were revealing, first of all, a less than Christian view of life in the way that they approached their future plans. They were planning as if life were more stable and more substantial than it really is. But worse than that, worse than that, they were revealing a less than Christian view of God. As we'll see in a moment when we uh, turn to uh, focus on verse 15, their planning did not adequately reflect the truth about God and how each of us relates to him. Their view of God was too small. They had too high a view of themselves and too low a view of God. And as a result, they were guilty of godless planning rather than godly planning. And all of this is a consequence of one underlying sin. So we discover in verse 16, as it is, you boast and brag. The way that these people went about planning their futures revealed a boastful spirit. And it was a particular type of boasting. It was a smug self confidence, a smug self-confidence. According to one translation of these verses, a different translation from the one we're using here, James says to them, you boast in your arrogance. You boast in your arrogance. Their whole outlook boiled down to this. We know what we want, we know how to get it, and what's more, we're going to get it. The future is ours for the taking. 
The Greek word that's uh, translated in these verses, uh, bragging or arrogance in different translations, it's quite an interesting one. It comes from a word that would be used to describe a travelling quack. Someone who boasts about his miracle cures. It is really just full of hot air. He can't deliver on his brash claims. This is a sort of smug self-confidence that we're looking at here. So then, this godless planning arises out of this smug self-confidence. And this is no minor slip-up. On the contrary, it's a serious shortcoming. It's a serious sin. James sums it up in one devastating word. Evil. It is evil. Now these days, the word evil is reserved for the most shocking and depraved of sins, is it not? Uh, Serial killers are evil, we say. Uh, Child abusers are evil. Drug barons are evil. Terrorists are evil. But here, God is telling us, through his inspired word, the Bible, that for Christians to make plans, whether big plans or small plans, with a smug self-confidence that fails to take into account everything that we claim to believe as Christians is simply evil. Why? Why so serious? Because to make plans with that kind of attitude is just to make plans as if the God of the Bible did not really exist, despite what we confess with our lips. Godless planning is evil. And that, I think, should cause all of us pause and reflect very carefully on how we approach our plans, our ambitions, our aspirations for this coming year. Well, we've considered what this passage has to say about not, uh, how not to go about making plans. But what is the alternative, you may ask? How should we go about it? Is the answer very simply that we should make no plans at all? If the future is so unpredictable and if our lives are just a mist that can disappear in a moment, uh, it's the best thing not to make any plans at all, uh, but rather just to live each moment as it comes without taking anything for granted at all. No. No. Of course, that's, that's not the answer. We can't avoid making plans. I planned this sermon. That may come as a surprise to some of you. But it's true, I assure you. I'm not simply making it up as I go along. The Apostle Paul made plans. You can read that in his letters. He says, I plan to do this, I plan to do that. And you can read it in the book of Acts. It tells of his uh, various plans for missionary journeys. And of course, Jesus made plans. The events of Jesus' life didn't just happen randomly. They were carefully planned. In fact, the Bible says they were planned from the beginning of time. Jesus' whole life was a plan. It was a plan to bring healing and wholeness to a hurting, broken, sinful world, as John very helpfully reminded us in this morning's message. So we have to make plans. There has to be planning. So if the alternative is not no planning, well, what is it? The alternative to godless planning is godly planning. And it looks like this. Verse 15. Instead, You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. What is the right way to go about making plans? It's this. 
We should make our plans in humble acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God, recognising that everything ultimately depends on God's will. We must make our plans in humble acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God, recognising that everything ultimately depends on his will. Note that this says very little, in fact, about the plans themselves that we might make. It says very little about the content of plans. Perhaps some of us should go to this or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Perhaps in certain circumstances that might be a right plan. The important thing here is not so much the plans themselves, but the manner in which they are conceived and the manner in which they are declared. In essence, it's a question of attitude, a question of the direction of our hearts and our minds, the direction in which they are aligned when we make our plans. Let's look at this verse 15 a bit more closely and note two important aspects of this alternative. First of all, there is a crucial condition, a crucial condition. If it is the Lord's will, all our plans must be prefaced with this all-important qualification, if the Lord wills. Our plans must be made in acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. Or to put it simply, God's plans always enjoy right of way over our plans. If our plans conflict with God's plans, well, guess whose plans win the day? It used to be fashionable among Christians in earlier generations to write the initials DV in letters which expressed uh, intentions about future plans. I look forward to seeing you in the new year, DV. Once I have completed my studies, DV. I will do this or that. Now, as many of you will know, I'm sure, DV stands for Deo Volente, which is Latin for God willing, God willing. And so to write DV in that way was simply to acknowledge, as James reminds us here, that there is a crucial condition underlying all our plans. They will only come to fruition if the Lord wills that they do. Perhaps it would be a good thing then if this practice came back into fashion amongst Christians. Perhaps in these secular times when God is being pushed to the margins of life, we need to reintroduce an explicit expression of the Christian conviction that God is sovereign and at the centre of all things. God doesn't depend on us. We depend on God. So that expression, God willing, that mustn't become a mantra, just a verbal formula that we sort of tack on to our plans to give them a veneer of humility and holiness in front of other Christians. No, Deo Valente, if the Lord wills, is not a mantra, it's a mindset. A mindset. It's something that must govern all of our thinking, whether we actually verbalise it or not. So that's the first thing to note, the crucial condition. The second aspect of this verse I want us to note is its comprehensive coverage. It's comprehensive coverage. What aspects of our plans exactly are conditioned by God's will in this way? Well, this first reminds us, first of all, that our very lives are dependent on God's will. If it is the Lord's will, we will live. Think about that for a moment. The only reason that you and I are alive right now, ultimately, is that the God of the universe wills that we live. The only reason that your heart continues to pump blood 
and your lungs continue to pump air is because it is God's good pleasure that they do. And if God were to change his mind at this moment, you'd be gone. Now, of course, God is not a capricious God like the gods worshipped in some religions. No, he's faithful. He's reliable. He doesn't change his mind on a whim. But that doesn't alter, does not alter the fact that we depend on him for our every breath. How often do we take that for granted? But that's not all James has to say. He continues, not only our lives, our very existence, but all our activities and our accomplishments are dependent on God's will too. If it is the Lord's will, he says, we will do this or that. Whatever we plan to do, whatever it may be, it will only come to fruition if the Lord wills. No aspect, no aspect of our plans is too big or too small to escape the comprehensive coverage of the sovereignty of God. That, in essence, is what it means for the Lord to be the Lord. And depending on the attitude of our hearts, that truth will either be a source of resentment and frustration, or it will be a source of comfort and humility. So then, in light of these biblical truths, what should our response be? Are we simply passive in the face of God's sovereignty? Or should it spur us to take action in some way? Do these verses here invite any response from us? I believe they do. In the first place, we should be challenged to cultivate a Christian mindset. A Christian mindset in the way that we approach our plans, our ambitions, our aspirations. We need to bring to bear on our planning everything that the Bible has to say about God, about ourselves, and about the future. If I can put it this way, we need to look at the future with biblical glasses. With biblical glasses. Not with the distorted, grubby, godless lenses of those who don't profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. If we claim to follow Christ, we need to think as Christ taught us to think. And we must foster the right heart attitude as well. Not only the mind, it's the heart. There's no place here for this smug self-confidence that I've talked about. Instead, there must be humility in the face of God's sovereignty and a childlike trust that our Heavenly Father holds all things, even our very existence, our very lives, in His hands. We must cultivate a proper perspective a perspective shaped by the central convictions of our Christian faith. Secondly, though, this second part of a response, we can also actively aim to conform our plans to God's will. We can aim to conform our plans to God's will, but with an important, very important qualification, to the extent that God has revealed his will. Of course, we cannot know God's will for the future in exhaustive detail. We cannot know everything that God wills for the future. We can't just download, as it were, God's year planner for 2005 and consult it. In fact, if we knew God's will exhaustively, then the future would not be unpredictable for us, would it? But that was precisely the error made by the planners that James rebukes in this passage. They overlooked the fact that the future was not completely predictable. And so we cannot know God's will in exhaustive detail. But having said that, 
God has not left us completely in the dark either. He has revealed his will in part. In part. And he has revealed enough for us to direct our affairs in ways that please him and honour him. Now, I really don't have time uh, to treat this point in great detail. I mean, that would be a sermon series in itself. And if you're interested in that, then you should direct maybe your request to the senior pastor. I'm not going to do it here. But I do want to just throw out three points and leave you to think through the implications for yourself. And I would encourage you to do that. Because there are at least three important aspects of God's will that he has revealed and therefore should guide our planning. First, there are God's precepts. God's precepts, his moral laws, his commandments, which tell us what, are, what is right and what is pleasing to him and what is wrong and displeasing. God's precepts are most famously summarized in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And if you missed the excellent sermon series on the Ten Commandments that we had earlier in 2004, then I would encourage you to get the tapes uh, and download, or download the messages from the chapel website. In fact, if you didn't miss them, why not listen to them again? So first of all, our plans should be in accord with God's precepts. Secondly, there are God's priorities. The Bible informs us that some things are more important to God than other things. For example, looking after the needs of your own family members is more important to God than looking after the needs of non-relatives. Did you know that? You wonder where I'm getting that from? Well, read 1, 1 Timothy chapter 5. What church you go to is more important to God than what company you work for. And so if your New Year's resolution is to get a new job, perhaps involving relocation, that's something to bear in mind, isn't it? How do we know God's priorities? How do we know these priorities that God has? Well, the more that you come to know God's Word, the Bible, the more you come to understand and know the heart of God and to understand what His priorities are. And our plans should seek to reflect God's priorities. So God's precepts, God's priorities. Thirdly, there are God's purposes which he has revealed to us. God's purposes. God has a purpose for the world in general. He created it to glorify himself and for its inhabitants to live in, in perfect fellowship with him. And although it's fallen in sin, very evidently, his plan is to redeem it and to restore it through his son, Jesus Christ. That's God's purpose for the world. And God has a purpose for the church as a whole. We are ambassadors and representatives of the Lord Jesus, commissioned to tell the world the good news of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Jesus, and to teach people how to be devoted, fruitful followers of Jesus. In a nutshell, that's God's purposes for the church as a whole. And God has a purpose for each one of us as individuals. His plan is to mould us and to refine our characters to be like Jesus in love, in humility, in holiness. And a significant part of that character transformation is to come through testing and trials. That is God's purpose for each of us as individuals. So we should ask ourselves, do our plans for the future, for this coming year, pay heed to God's revealed purposes? Do they reflect his priorities? And do they honour his precepts? If we do aim to conform our plans to God's revealed will, well, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be surprises or disappointments or failures tomorrow. But it does mean that there will be far less scope 
for resentment, for frustration, and for disillusionment, whatever the future holds. Let me deal very briefly with this last verse, verse 17. I don't want to miss it out. James writes this, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Why does he say this? How does this relate to what has just been said in these previous verses? Well, very briefly, I think that the main point James is making here is this. Sinning in in knowledge is worse than sinning in ignorance. Sinning in knowledge is worse than sinning in ignorance. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's as if he's saying to these planners in verse 13 that he's described, okay, perhaps you made and you announced these wonderful plans of yours, but you just didn't realize, for whatever reason, that you weren't coming at it in a truly Christian way. You didn't realize that you were overlooking certain crucial things and not honoring God. Well, now you know better. Now you've been told. Or as they put it in some parts of Scotland, now that's you tell. So James is warning them. Whatever was the case before, you have no excuse from now on. You've been told. And that warning applies to us too, does it not? Now we've been told. If any of us did not realise before today that our planning was displeasing to God by not properly acknowledging him, we now have no excuse. We now know better. Some brief words of conclusion and challenge. As I mentioned in my introduction, James's letter is very concerned with practical living and with consistency between what Christians say they believe and how they actually live in practice. And we've seen how he applies that to the particular issue of making plans for the future. So the basic challenge in all of this is to ask ourselves whether what we claim to believe as Christians is actually making any difference to the way that we approach our plans for this coming year and even for this coming week. We claim that Jesus Christ is our Saviour and that he is the Lord of our lives. But could anyone actually tell that from what we say about our plans, our hopes, our aspirations for the future? And so I want to leave you with two very basic questions to reflect on. Questions that I've asked myself in studying this passage. First question is this. Have you acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord over all? Have you acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord over all? Draw up a list of the things that you have planned to do in this coming year. Draw up a list of the areas of your life uh, that are going to be most important to you in 2005. Does each of them reflect a Christian mindset, a Christ-like mindset? Or are there parts where, if you're honest, your commitment to Jesus doesn't factor in at all? Have you acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord over all of your life? And the second question is this. Have you acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord at all? Have you acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord at all? I was very fortunate to be brought up in a Christian home. I don't remember any time when I didn't believe in God and uh, didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God who died on a cross uh, to bring salvation to sinful people like me. 
And yet one day in my teenage years, it suddenly struck me that, that for all I claimed to believe, it made little, if any, difference to my hopes and my plans for the future. The sort of plans and ambitions that I had uh, might just as well have been those of any of my non-Christian friends that I hang out with. It was as if what I said and believed on Sunday had no influence whatsoever on my plans from Monday through to Saturday. I might as well have been two separate people living unconnected lives. Perhaps there's someone here tonight who knows just what I'm talking about because it describes you as well. If so, well, now that's you tell. And not by me, by God's word. What better way to start this year, what better New Year's resolution to make than to humble yourself before God, to accept without reservation that Jesus really is the Lord of your life and to entrust all your ambitions and hopes and plans to him. Let's